Our scripture this morning from the New Testament, Paul's second epistle to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 7. You'll see it on the sermon outline available in your program. If you would take that out and have that available, it may help you as we work through our study together this morning. Paul writes, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So far the reading of God's Word. Hold on to this outline. One of my favorite films is a movie called Cinderella Man. It stars Russell Crowe, and it's the story of a struggling man who has a young family. They don't have any money, and he goes down to the docks every day hoping to get work, and occasionally he gets work, but he barely has enough to scrape by and feed his children. And one day, after a frustrating time at the dockyards, he comes home and his little girl greets him. And she comes running out of the basement apartment and she says, Daddy, Daddy, Jimmy stole. He goes, what? Jimmy stole. And he goes downstairs into the apartment, and there is the boy stone silent. And you can tell, there is, you can feel, he's angry, he's humiliated, what he's done in the neighborhood. He, and yet, it is a display, I'm going to show you this clip from the film, it is a display of remarkable, the psychologist would say, remarkable emotional intelligence. We would call it relational wisdom as he interacts with his son, much to say about it, very well done. If you would dim the lights and if you would show this clip and watch for the relational wisdom that's given to this man.
Johnny Johnson had to go away to Delaware on a tour with his uncle. Why? His parents didn't have enough money for them to eat. Yeah, well, things ain't easy to come to you, right? That's a lot of people worse off than all we are. Just because things ain't easy, they don't give you the excuse to say what's not yours, does it? That's stealing, right? We don't steal. No matter what happens, we don't steal. Not ever. You got me? Why he stole the sausage. But then the father has what we've been talking about. All three components of relational wisdom are very clear. There is a God awareness. You shall not steal. And he speaks with the moral authority that comes from God. And the cinematography, is, the direction is well done. He, he stands with, over the sun as he speaks to him. And yet... He learns what's going on inside his son. And to do that, he had to be self-controlled. If he had just swatted the boy, if he had just gone after him and ripped into him, would the child have opened up and said, Jimmy Mitchell got sent away to Delaware because his parents didn't have enough money to feed him. So he himself is self-aware, self-engaged, and restrained, and then he becomes other-aware, and he learns the heart of his own boy. And the boy is governed governed by a spirit of fear, what Paul calls in our text, a spirit of fear. And that spirit of fear by the love of his father is transformed into love and self-control in the boy. And it's a powerful moment and engagement, isn't it? Last week, we spoke about that first component, God awareness. And we, uh, Ken Sandy, who, whose material I've been drawing on all summer, he says each of us needs a GPS. Remember that? That we would glorify God, G. Uh, P, that we would pursue God in our lives. S, that we would serve God in our lives. And it becomes this God awareness. But this week, it's that second component, We want to talk about self-awareness and then self-engagement, self-management. And James Braddock in this clip, such a beautiful example of that for us. Self-awareness. One of the hardest things in the world. I can see what's going on inside of you, but I'm so slow to see what is boiling inside of my soul. 
And so these definitions right at the top that Ken Sandy gives us, he says, self-awareness is your ability to discern accurately your own emotions, values, strengths, and weaknesses. And then self-engagement is your ability to master your thoughts, words, emotions, and actions so that it advances God's purposes. You see, discernment and engagement, self-mastery and sanctification because of your relationship with Christ. Now, if Ken Sandy gave us the GPS for self-awareness, he suggests four, four letters that, that are the word read, R-E-A-D. We are people who read the Bible, but we also learn in light of the Bible to read ourselves. And R stands for recognize your emotions. E stands for evaluate their source. A stands for anticipate the consequences of following them. And D stands for direct them in a constructive course. And we're just going to work through these briefly together today as we want to become men and women and to teach our children how to be self-aware and self-engaged in all our relationships. Number one, recognize your emotions. And I'll be brief on this point because I've spoken to it in the past few weeks. But the point is simply that the emotionally healthy person, the person who is wise relationally, is someone who recognizes what's going on inside their heart. And the Bible itself gives us labels, doesn't it? There are labels that the Bible uses for self-description and self-awareness. Now, I gave you this chart, not to overwhelm you. I'm not going to go through this whole chart, but I I do want to give you vocabulary words because some of us need a better vocabulary to get acquainted with what's churning inside of us. So you can take this with you, and you can even use this to help your children identify what is it that you're feeling in the moment, in And words from the Bible, words like sorrow, bitterness, anxiety, fear, jealousy, or joy, or love, rapture, joy of uh, ecstasy, all of these things, jealousy, you see. These are labels. The Bible gives them to us, and it's helpful to name them. Because your emotions in your brain are a filing cabinet of your response to all your experiences. And as you hit your circumstances, your first stop is at that filing cabinet. And your emotions come and sometimes they hijack your own rational thinking. So it's important to be aware of what's going on. To ask, what am I feeling? You say, oh, Pastor John there, that's just psychobabble. No, it's not. For our Lord Jesus, when he walked this earth, was very aware of what he was going through and even discipled his followers in this. He, he says in Mark 14, 34, he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And this shows us how Jesus was just aware of the sadness in his life and he labels it for them and he says, It's killing me. All right? So that's just point number one. Recognize your emotions. Point number two, E, is to evaluate their source. 
So turn over your outline, and we're going to go through this a little bit with some Scripture passages here. Paul says that um, we need to discern the root causes of what's going on inside of us. Now, that should sound familiar to you because Martin and I are often teaching us that we should not only pay attention to the surface sins in our life, but what is at the root of those sins, to get down in the heart of the matter. And, and this, uh, evaluating your emotions, is a cousin. It's a cousin to that. I'm not saying that emotions are sinful. We've already established that we are made in the image of God and He wired us with emotions. Emotions are good and important in your life. Even emotions like fear. Remember, if you uh, come up on your hike to a rattlesnake that's coiled right in front of you and you're about to step on it and now you see the rattlesnake, what happens? The visual impulse goes to the amygdala and the amygdala sends a signal to the adrenal gland which produces what? Adrenaline. And boom, you get energy and the fear drives you away from the rattlesnake. That's good. You were wired that way. And yet... And yet, emotions that are legitimate, appropriate anxiety can become crippling panic and a disorder in your life where you are governed by fear. Anger, a proper displeasure at evil, anger can be corrupted and turn into rage. Sadness, which is appropriate at times. Sadness can spiral down into a kind of self-obsessed depression. And it can be unhealthy in your life and in your relationships. Friends, this is complicated. And I don't pretend to be able to unpack this for you or to explain yourself to you. But the book of Proverbs Chapter 20, verse 5 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. It's deep. It's com- it is complex. Why? Because a man's heart is complex. What is the heart? Francis Schaeffer said, The heart is all I know myself to be. The heart in the Bible is not that organ pumping underneath your sternum. The heart is the integration of your intellect and your emotions and your will and your moral compass. And to, to draw out the depths of your own heart means to ask, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? Why am I feeling what I'm feeling? What is right and wrong as I understand it? And what does my will in its, in its captivity uh, to my own self, what does my will say? Is it for the Lord or is it for me? You see, the heart is like deep water. But the mature North Shore Community Church family member is one who knows how to not only ask, what am I feeling, but why am I feeling it? What's going on? I'm just so full of movie quotes this week. I don't watch many movies. But the opening sentence of the movie Mad Max, Fury Road, uh, the first sentence says... As the world fell, each of us in our own way was broken. It was hard to know who was more crazy, 
me or everyone else. The story, really, there's about three sentences in the whole movie. It's just crash, 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 crash. But, but, but the movie's about understanding this cauldron of craziness inside of Max. So I want to evaluate why I'm angry. Why am I angry? Well, here's a hypothetical. This is just hypothetical. I'm angry. Why? Because Pastor Martin questioned my judgment. How dare he? He questions my judgment, and, and why does it bother me so much? Why am I feeling this way? And, okay, I'll try and be honest with myself. Why? And the answer is, because I'm proud, and I'm the boss, and I really want the unquestioned support of my friend and colleague, and why would he raise this question of my judgment? Why am I now impatient? I'm impatient with him. Why? I've got to be honest. It's because I'm so busy and I don't have time for this. It's because, no, let's be honest, it's, it's because I'm lazy and I don't want to deal with the emotional static of having to work it through and so I'm so impatient. Now, this is just hypothetical. This would never, ever happen. You know this. But friends, the Bible instructs us to R, recognize our emotions, and then E, evaluate what's going on with them. And then point number three, letter A, anticipate the consequences of following them. And you see, this is the part of self-engagement, self-management that we need. We, we want to grow, don't we? We want to mature as children of God, and we certainly want our children to grow and mature as children of God. And a huge part of it is that we learn how to anticipate the consequences of our emotions hijacking us and spiraling us out of control. And then to stop and reconsider what we're about to say or do and to act in a way that honors him. One of my teachers, uh, John Bettler, he used to say, Christians are people who learn to act not just react. We can react, and there are lists in the New Testament of reactions that become sinful. It's called, and we'll get to it in Ephesians 4.31 in a minute, but just there's a list of rage and brawling and slander and malice. What are those? Those are sinful reactions to others. But Ephesians 4.32 says, Put on kindness and compassion and forgiveness. Those are actions. Christians are people who, because of the cross of Jesus and their relationship with Jesus Christ, are people who don't just react, but we are to act. And to do that, you have to anticipate the consequences of following your emotions when they hijack you. The Bible happens to camp out on anger a lot. 
I'm not sure why. That's probably not your problem, but it camps out on it a lot. And, and actually, at the bottom of the front page of your outline on the right-hand bottom is Ecclesiastes 7, verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Wow. Oh, Pastor John, don't you know? There are times when anger is a legitimate response, and that is true. I can tell you there are times when I have experienced a holy displeasure with my circumstances. And I have experienced righteous indignation. But the problem is that righteousness stays righteous for about a second. And then it gets polluted and corrupted by my fallen heart. It's very unusual for me to have righteous indignation very long. And righteous or anger lodges in the heart of a fool. I am such a fool sometimes in my anger. You know, just when, when emotions come and they begin to hijack the rational part of our brain, the neurologist can explain that to you, all I know is that I have impulses to respond and those impulses are not always right. Listen, when there's a fire, you have an impulse. And what is the impulse if something is on fire in your kitchen? You get a bucket of water and you throw the water on the fire. That's, that's, that's right. That's what you're supposed to do, isn't it? Take the water and throw it on the fire. Unless it's a grease fire. And then what? Hmm? You know, you, you, there's a fire. The, 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 there's, there are YouTube videos. If you've never seen them, you just Google grease fire or water on a grease fire. There's a five-second one where a pan of bacon catches on fire and these two guys, they have a long stick and they have a, a soup can of water and they pour it on top of the fire on the stove. And immediately, whoosh, flames engulf the whole kitchen. Why is that? You pour water on a fire, right? Oil and water, grease and water don't mix. So the water falls to the bottom and immediately in the heat the water evaporates and all the little beads of of air and water now shower through the entire kitchen. And you see the guys running and ducking as the flames just engulf the kitchen. Your first impulse is not always right. You need to know that. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, you see. Proverbs 22, verse 3, it says, The prudent sees danger and hides himself. What does it mean, hides himself? It says, The simple go on and suffer for it. I think a a modern translation is the simpleton goes on and hits the send button on his email. Have you ever had that experience where you decided to express your frustration or displeasure to someone via email? Anybody here ever done that? I remember I once spent about an hour working on a letter that I was writing to someone, and I, I, I laid it out, it took me an hour, and I'm just about to hit the send button, and I thought, 
self? Wait, just a moment. Maybe there are some typos in it. Maybe I should proofread this before I send it. Maybe I should get a drink of water first. Went downstairs, got a drink of water, came back up, and I read it out loud to myself. And as I read it, it became crystal clear that the fuel behind this email was fear. And my own foolish desire to control and manipulate. And I did not hit the send button. I deleted the email. I remember one time I wrote an email and, and I sent it to a friend just so he could review it and validate what I was writing. I, I sent it to him and 30 seconds later my phone is ringing. John, don't send this. What are you thinking? I wouldn't send it. Delete. The simple go forward and suffer for it. I should be slow to anger like James Braddock in the film. I should be careful and self-aware before I act, before I discover what's going on in the heart of the other person, before I'm aware of God Himself. I need to be aware of this cauldron of desires inside of us. And we are warned in Colossians 3 when it talks about passions and evil desires. If you don't think this is serious, if you just say, well, that's just who I am, if you ever use that excuse, be warned. It says, for on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And every malicious impulse, every desire to punish the other guy, every one of those, on account of these things, Paul tells us the wrath of God is coming. So I should anticipate the consequences of following them. R stands for recognize your emotions. E, evaluate. A, anticipate. And now... Well, what do you do with that energy of your emotions? D, direct them on a constructive course. You see, back to what I said at the beginning, emotions move us. Emotions create energy inside of us. But as Dr. Bettler used to say, use that energy to attack the problem, not the person. That's what the Christian does. Attack the problem not the person. How can you do this? You use the energy to, to, to improve the situation. Proverbs 15, verse 1. It's a beautiful statement of this. It says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So which is you? Harsh word, soft answer. Paul says in Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. You have to anticipate what comes. Men, you have a disagreement with your wife and it escalates into a fight. It escalates into a fight. Who wins the fight? Nobody wins. 
Do the kids win? The kids don't win. Who wins? Nobody wins a fight because you've attacked the person, not the problem. Instead, I said, what do you do with rage and bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander and malice? What do you do? I'll tell you what you do. You take it to the cross. Take it to the cross. Christian, you go to Jesus Christ honestly. You, you visualize, visualize clawing back your rage and anger and carrying it in a, in a bushel basket saying, Jesus, here it is. Forgive me. Take this. Wash me. Cleanse me. And Jesus, I wonder, is your blood sufficient for my fury, for my greed, my lust, my selfishness, my bitterness, my rage? Is it? This is important theology, my friends. Is the cross of Christ sufficient to forgive and atone for your sins, even when you've been hijacked by your emotions? What do you think? The great pastor Richard Sibbs, who, he wrote the book The Bruised Reed. I've given it to many of you. Richard Sibbs says this. If you're taking notes, you'll write this down. He says, There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. I like that quote. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Do you believe this? Friends, you will never put off You will never get rid of those sinful impulses unless you know where to take them. He says, get rid of them. Well, where do we take them? You take them to Jesus. Take them to the cross. And there, find mercy and grace and newness inside your heart. In fact, you'll never really be willing to deal with them or able to deal with them until you see that there's more mercy. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. Every emotion is not a sin, right? Depression is real. Anger is real. Sorrow is real. Sadness is real. Those things are legitimate. But I can sin with them all. And I must go to Christ anticipating uh, and then directing them in a constructive way. With patience. You see, that's the only way I get patient With patience, a ruler may be persuaded. I am only patient when I see how Jesus was patient with me. Understand? Sometimes my emotions hijack me and they get me running in this direction and I need to go 180 degrees the other way. It's true. And that was true even for Jesus. Even our Master our teacher, our Messiah. Even he was tempted, that is, his emotions laid hold of him, and and he never sinned, but his emotions drove him in this direction. We see this in that remarkable passage in John chapter 12, when Jesus is very self-aware, and he says in John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled. 
And he's tempted to say something. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Do you see that verse there? He says, my soul is troubled. I am upset, and I'll tell you why. Why is Jesus upset? Jesus is upset because he is innocent, and he's about to be found guilty. Why is he upset? He's innocent. He's about to be murdered for the sins of sinners. I don't deserve this. My soul is troubled. All the forces of hell. You think Jesus was tempted? The Bible says Jesus was tempted. Tell God. Tell the Father. Tell Him. Save me from this hour. I've got a legion of angels, he says to Pontius Pilate. I have a legion of angels I could call down right now and they stand at the ready. And I'm sure in heaven they're all up there, the great angelic warriors saying, come on Jesus, just give us the word and we will crush them all. But Jesus does not do that. He is tempted to go this way. What shall I say? Save me from this hour. But no, for this hour I have come. And you and I, we have a Savior who turned and went to the cross. He went there to die for you and for me to make atonement, John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus. He is my example, but He's so much more than my example. He's my blood sacrifice for my sins and my failures. And there is more mercy in Him than sin in me. And I rest in Him and I trust Him alone. And I'm so glad He came to the cross. How would you have responded if you were James Braddock and your kid stole, humiliated the family, and reminded you of your own inadequacy, not with malice. The boy didn't act with malice. He said Jimmy Mitchell's parents had to send him away because their parents couldn't feed the kids. And he saw James Craddock. He goes, oh, oh, oh. And yet he composes himself. He speaks. We don't steal, boy, not ever. People have it worse than us. We don't steal. Give me your word. Give me your word. But notice how he gets down on his haunches and he gets below him in a moment of grace. And he says, and I promise you what your heavenly Father says to you, what Jesus Christ says to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never send you away. And this is the source of our freedom to know ourselves as we know God and as we master our own emotions, and the impulses of our hearts for Him, for His glory. Let's pray, shall we?